Hi, I'm Brian Mandel, the Editor-in-Chief of the Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine, CCJM. Welcome to Beyond the Pages, CCJM podcast, where we will take you in depth into the content of selected articles from the Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine and explore a few interesting tangents along the way. Through moderated interviews with our authors and other experts in the field, we hope the clinicians will gain a more nuanced perspective of clinical concepts that are changing the practice of medicine and be able to apply this perspective to the care of our patients. Welcome back to part two of our conversation. Please be sure to listen to part one of this episode. Now let's go back beyond the pages. So, so do you think, Dr. Calhoun, that actually breast imaging technology contributed to the changes in the way breast lesions are approached? I think, I mean, one example that I can think of relatively recently is, you know, the introduction of um, three-dimensional tomosynthesis for screening. I mean, I mean, I think the data are fairly clear that um, the false positive recall rate from screening is lower, cancer detection rate is higher. And also, um, we're all seeing more cases of architectural distortion, uh, and a higher proportion of those cases are turning out to be radial scars than we used to see. And th that's one example uh, uh, where the imaging modality uh, can make a difference in terms of what we see. And I was just going to say, you know, Dr. Crow continued with his interest in this question. Uh, back in 2003, he wrote a paper looking at uh, does core needle biopsy really affect, accurately reflect breast pathology and found that um, in looking at, uh, at patients who, who had these findings, the majority, 83% of patients, uh, the core needle biopsy findings demonstrated exact histologic agreement with the excisional findings. But in 12% um, in of patients, uh, the core needle biopsy was upgraded to, uh, to malignant pathology at the, at the time of at the time of surgery. I just wanted to add that in that over time there have been varying upgrade rates with these lesions and the upgrade rates are not particularly consistent. Uh, they range widely. Um, and I wonder, Ben, if you can kind of talk a little bit about that. Um, but why is there, why did there used to be an upgrade rate of, say, 25% with many of our uh, atypical lesions, and now it's, say, 3% or 2%? How is that explained? I think a couple of ways, um, a couple of contributors would be sample size in some of the earlier studies was relatively small. I think that um, a lot of these studies, including studies I've published, are single institution retrospective studies. Um, that that uh, has an impact. The other thing we have to always think about when patients are selected for surgery versus not is what the selection criteria were. Um, they're often not clearly outlined. So there's their selection bias. Um, I think uh, people who uh, take care of breast patients have a pretty good idea um, who really needs surgery. And and so patients who are most likely to be upgraded may be selected for surgery uh, when you do retrospective studies and then without clearly defined criteria, that makes it hard to follow that up. Yeah. The other thing, 
The other thing that's missing in some of the studies is follow-up for the patients who weren't excised. So we also then don't know what happened to those patients. But in terms of the lower upgrade rate, I think it's um, a, a clearer definition of upgrade. So we mentioned whether you include high-risk lesions uh, in your definition of upgrade. But one thing that probably shouldn't be included in cases that are defined as an upgrade are patients with a palpable suspicious mass that should be excluded. We should be talking about non-palpable lesions, probably um, detected at screening, uh, and then an image-guided core needle biopsy, and then whether those are upgraded or not. Uh, we would also exclude patients with BIRADS-5 imaging. Um, those have a very high likelihood of being malignant, and even if the subsequent core needle biopsy is benign, they can often go straight to surgery. So I think um, case definition had something to do with that too. And certainly atypical duct hyperplasia is typically still excised and uh, the more aggressive forms of lobular carcinoma in situ, the florid LCIS or uh, pleomorphic LCIS, those are still excised and not observed. Are there other lesions? other than ADH and the more aggressive LCIS forms that, that really are still typically excised most of the time? I, I think those are the main ones and you, and you make a good point. You know, so we, we talk about atypical hyperplasias and that's atypical ductal hyperplasia and atypical lobular hyperplasia. And we often then include classic type lobular carcinoma in situ with ALH um, in, under an umbrella term of lobular neoplasia. And then other lesions we think about are radial scars and, and papillomas. And um, papillomas without atypia is what we would be focusing on in terms of talking about an upgrade, those with atypia. Right. Papillomas with atypia are typically um, uh, excised as well. And, and you had asked about the uh, different types of breast biopsies, you know, and the challenges associated with that. You know, patients will have stereotactic breast biopsies for calcifications or very, very small lesions. They'll have MRI-guided biopsies for lesions that are not seen by ultrasound but are suspicious on the MRI. And ultrasound-guided biopsies are probably the most common and the uh, easiest to perform uh, when, an, when an, a lesion is seen by ultrasound and can be targeted. But there, there are core needle biopsies and vacuum-assisted core needle biopsies uh, where the vacuum-assisted uh, technology, eight to 10 samples will be collected without withdrawing the needle as this, this mechanism rotates uh, position and collects additional samples. So the sampling is not the same, whether it's a stereo, an ultrasound guided, an MRI guided, or vacuum assisted. Does that affect your ability to interpret uh, these findings and make distinctions between these different lesions pathologically? It certainly affects the volume of tissue that we receive. Um, a lot of stereotactic core biopsies are 12 gauge or maybe larger, nine gauge. A lot of the MRI guided core biopsies are nine gauge. Some ultrasound guided core biopsies may be 14 gauge, smaller diameter instrument. And that uh, does affect to some degree our ability to evaluate uh, these lesions. Um, 
it also just really impacts the volume of tissue that we receive. And a lot of the studies of upgrade rates for core needle biopsies have shown that um, the, the, the upgrade rate goes down as the adequacy of sampling increases, uh, the number of cores that are obtained uh, under vacuum assistance, as you mentioned, uh, and the gauge of the needle. Uh, and then going back to radiologic pathologic concordance, the degree to which the targeted lesion was removed by the core biopsy procedure. All of the things impact the upgrade rate. So, so it looks like we still don't have a consensus for managing the benign high-risk breast lesions. So, so what do you think, uh, what kind of well-defined evidence-based criteria are needed for actually selecting the patients for non-surgical management of the benign high-risk lesions? You know, so, so far, the primary care provider now has a list uh, to go back to their institution. Uh, do you have dedicated breast pathologists working with dedicated uh, breast radiologists to make this distinction of radiologic pathologic concordance? Um, are there standardized uh, uh, sizes for the needles used for sampling, number of passes, amount of tissue that's collected, different imaging, uh, imaging findings that prompt the biopsies. I mean, what the primary care provider is looking for are guidelines, statements by which to determine a course of action to improve predictability and quality. And there are so many different nuances uh, that lack consensus in this area. So, so actually, before going to this, I was, I was asking more broadly um, because each hospital might be different, may have different surgeons, different pathologists, but uh, as a whole uh, medical community or health system, uh, we need criteria, recommendations or guidelines, right, that we can follow. So what would be the next steps to reach to those levels? Um, because otherwise it's just... Uh, preference of the surgeons, of the pathologist, and we didn't even discuss about uh, the preference of the patient, because that might play a role in deciding between surgical intervention and observation. And are the patients really being offered that choice? And should they be offered that choice in this, in this situation? I think that the best place to start, in my opinion, is looking at average risk patients who have calcifications on their screening mammogram and they're asymptomatic. Um, wh what do you think, Ben? Where, what, what do we need to, to get this well-defined evidence-based criteria going forward to have clear guidelines? I, I agree. I think we need really, um, we need to determine what the criteria are for selecting patients who may be offered active surveillance. Um, and, and I would mention that, you know, that, that it would be active surveillance and that we're not saying um, that a patient would not ever have surgery, just would not have an immediate surgical excision after that core needle biopsy diagnosis. I think we have a template for this, a reasonable template for how to proceed. There used to be widely varying definitions of a positive margin after breast conserving surgery for breast cancer. Uh, the acceptable margin width uh, that meant you did not need to go back and re-excise varied across the country. 
and the uh, frequency of margin re-excision surgery varied widely across the country. And what eventually happened was the um, National uh, Academic Surgical and Radiation Oncology Societies got together. They commissioned a meta-analysis first. Then they met and developed a consensus statement on what was the appropriate definition of a positive margin after breast conserving surgery. Uh, this was subsequently endorsed by ASCO. And now I think that's been widely embraced by uh, uh, practitioners across the country and in a variety of different settings. So I think we have to, and that's, by the way, that's four patients who are undergoing breast conserving surgery specifically, who will have whole breast radiation therapy after surgery, and who will be offered and take ideally endocrine therapy if they have hormone receptor positive breast cancer. So it's for that subset of patients with contemporary multimodality therapy. I think we need to come up with a similar patient population definition, um, a similar comprehensive review of the literature, and then leadership from our, our national leaders in, in breast care to help us develop a consensus. I agree. And, you know, patients can trust that when large prospective randomized studies are performed, that the, the data supports uh, observation when it is recommended uh, in that setting. I'm not sure that we have that we have that data as of yet, and patients are very hesitant to de-escalate cancer therapy. Uh, patients that are newly diagnosed, for example, will accept aggressive uh, treatments with significant side effects for even a one percent benefit in survival. With older patients, we need to talk both about overall survival, but also disease-free survival. If older patients aren't treated as aggressively, and commonly a 70-year-old will live an additional 18.7 years, uh, they need to understand disease-free survival, the likelihood that they may have another problem in the future. So will these women accept uh, even a small chance of upgrade in avoiding excision. Uh, you know, it's an, it, it is an interesting question. You know, in, in terms of patient preference too, we may have some uh, guidance from one of the low-risk DCIS trials of active surveillance. The Lord trial uh, in Europe opened in 2017, and most of the patients who uh, were consented then refused to be randomized to either surgery or active surveillance they wanted to choose. So uh, three years later in 2020, the trial was converted to a patient preference trial and accrual has gone up 40%. So that we may have to give some very serious thought to, to patient preference in this area. And, you know, active surveillance and, you know, the MRI screening coming in twice a year and alternating your a mammogram with a screening breast MRI that has a 24% chance that a patient will be called back on their first MRI, an 8 to 9% chance that they'll have a false positive biopsy. We Primary care providers really need to understand the anxiety that can be associated with active surveillance. Of course, if they have atypical hyperplasia or LCIS on the core, they still will be offered that type of, of a 
program and follow-up, but if they have a papilloma or a radial scar or flat epithelial atypia, another uh, benign lesion, and nothing further is found at the time of surgery, they may not have to undergo that active surveillance. So, so if I understand correctly, um, in in uh, centers like uh, ours or Dr. Calhoun, um, we might be able to select some patients uh, for observation of some of the benign high-risk breast lesions. Uh, however, I think um, from our discussion, I don't think we are ready for the widespread implementation of observation um, across the country, ac across all the vulnerable populations, uh, and uh, without taking in consideration um, patients' preference. Um, so any final words? Well, you know, one thing that you mentioned um in terms of, of uh, standardization, we must agree on the definition and processes for determining radiologic pathologic concordance with systems in place to assure quality. We have to agree on the age and importantly, the risk level of patients in whom observation is recommended. We have to agree on the imaging findings, the sampling issues, the histologic findings and patient follow-up issues an informed shared decision-making with the patient must be part of the process, as well as large perspective studies and long-term oncologic safety data. Uh, and you bring up a, another important point about follow-up in vulnerable populations. I mean, we know that probably one of the most uh, embarrassing areas in medicine uh, is the disparities that are observed uh, in in breast cancer care. And the follow-up of high-risk patients is no, uh, is no different. We see that uh, in, uh, in women with low socioeconomic status, they have uh, less access to high-quality mammography, poorer follow-up, less uh, participation in high-risk programs. Insurance coverage is a huge issue for MRI screening and even preventive medication. So when, uh, you know, these factors are taken into account, you really need to think about, about whether you don't want to excise uh, benign high-risk lesions. So thank you so much, Dr. Peterson and Dr. Calhoun for your insights and helping us go beyond the pages of the Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine. Thank you. Thank you, Ben, for the work that you've done in this field, and thank you for having us today. Thank you. Thank you for your insights in helping us to go beyond the pages of the Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine. To read CCJM articles, visit ccjm.org. To participate in other accredited educational activities, visit ccfcme.org. You can subscribe to the podcast on Google Play, Spotify, or however you prefer to access your podcasts.